and welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some friends from Philadelphia come together to talk about all things movies. Uh, we are kicking off our final theme for 2021, um, which is really hard to believe. Uh, but before we kind of get into all of that, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Movie John Podcast Network, uh, this wonderful podcast family that we're a part of. Um, so be sure to check out Movie John and all the podcasts related to it, especially Killer Bees, where uh, former Butter with That um, co-host Tori and her partner Garrett run that and talk about B-movie actors. It's a really phenomenal podcast, so be sure to check that out along with all the other podcasts in the Movie John family. So it's hard to believe we're at nearing the end of 2021. Um, this has been a really fun year with Butter With That. And maybe as we get closer to the end of the theme, we can you know, think more about the previous year. But I just wanted to say how much fun this year has been. 2020 was a rough year all around for many reasons. And so I'm very happy that this year we were able to come together very frequently and talk about so many wonderful movies. And I am incredibly excited to announce that our last theme of 2021 is a return to a theme that I had the idea for three years ago, and that is Cold Movies, part two. So I've just been loving that last month we talked about fighting and family, like food and family three years ago, and now we're doing Cold Movies again. Um, Christmas movies, I feel like, are a really easy target, and we definitely you know should talk about those. But it felt like you know three years ago that a whole month of Christmas movies might be a little excessive, hence the idea of just cold movies and the question is the snow real was a very prevalent question uh, that we asked all throughout that month uh so i'm super excited to dive into today's cold movie Burr, shiver but before we dive into the film that i brought to the crew this week how is everybody doing how are we feeling being close to the end of the year has anybody been watching anything of note or anything that they want to erase from their brain so i've been doing um uh, Thanksgiving this November. Uh, I'd mentioned it last week with uh, some friends who thought it would be hilarious to watch as many Tom Hanks movies as we could uh, with mixed success. So we so far we've watched The Terminal. Uh, we've watched Castaway. We've watched Da Vinci Code. So we're kind of do picking from a lot of different Tom Hanks movies and different tones and plots. And I'll say that actually Castaway held up better than I thought it was going to. The beginning and the end are dumb as shit, but the plane crash looks really good. And I was sort of, I was into, uh, I was into most of the storyline with him on the island. Da Vinci Code, he's like asleep the entire movie. Someone paid him a lot of money to be in that movie, Angels and Demons and Inferno, because I can't believe he did all three. But I'll keep I'll keep you all updated as we move further into our Thanksgiving. Um, Tom Hanks is just a weird guy. He must be just be so beloved in Hollywood. He'll literally be given any role in a silver platter. He's put Hollywood under a, an interesting spell of some sort because he's not the worst actor, but he's definitely not the best actor in Hollywood. He's just got some charisma or something. But that's my Thanksgiving report. <laughs> Remember when Tom Hanks had COVID at the very beginning of the oh, shit yeah. show? Oh my yeah. god! Everyone was devastated. I, I'll I'll speak for myself. I was devastated. He's just like Hollywood's father, you know. <laughs> he was from like 1988, 
at age like 30. <laughs> Thank you for the report on Hank's giving, which is a phrase that I love. My one friend has been saying, um, no thanks, Tom Hanks. That's been her catchphrase lately. So that's been surprising me of that. Any, uh, Sam or Dave, anything you've been watching? I know I haven't been really watching a ton. It's just been pretty busy. So I'm excited for the holidays where I can maybe catch up on some things. Um, but anything you guys have been watching lately? No, no, I'm still in the hole. Can't handle really overwhelmed. So I'm just going back to things I've watched before. However, I think it was like the weekend after Halloween, my roommates decorated for Christmas and we have watched, um, two Christmas movies since one I won't talk about because it's my pick for cold film um but the other one is uh god what is it even called the night k-n-i-g-h-t before Christmas no Christine how dare you cheer for this movie (laughs) wait I watched this last Christmas and it was so fucking good okay I'm sorry (laughs) are you kidding me (laughs) I don't Sam, give your give your dish on the night, uh, or like it's the it's night before, not night before Christmas, but it's like Christmas night or something like that. Whatever it is, um, I remember when this movie first came out and people were writing letterbox reviews of it, and someone was like, "So the main character's name is he's a knight, so he's a sir, and his name is Cole. Why would you name a character Circle? It's so confusing." And you know what? <laughs> Like, still valid a year later, two years later at this point. The movie, like, the whole time I was just enjoying it and then also saying, I'm too old for this. I can't handle this anymore. I can't do it. Is that where Vanessa Hudgens falls in love with the time-traveling knight? Yes. Yes. That movie's wild. (laughs) I've seen that. That, that, That's a, like, when he tries to drive the car, right, or something, or gets scared of cars. I I just think they have such great... Well, I shouldn't say chemistry because, like, it's so saccharine and just, like, whatever. But the guy who plays Cole the Knight has this kind of mischief. I don't know. He's, his energy I fi- I found pretty hilarious. Now, granted, it was, like, Christmas Eve and I was a couple drinks in and <laughs> was enjoying that movie. But maybe upon rewatch, I will think differently. But Well, you don't have to rewatch it. It's not for me at the very least it's not the movie i'm picking um which i'm not spoiling that you guys are just gonna love it i promise mm-hmm. dave have you been watching any trashy netflix movies uh not a trashy netflix movie but i watched a trashy daily wire film daily wire uh will probably ring a bell to anyone who has uh has ever heard the voice of uh i'll debate you on that ben shapiro who is it's his uh, his news company, but they've also, uh, as of early this year, uh, decided that they're going to start financing and distributing films. Uh, one of which was a film called Run Hide Fight that came out last year. Run Hide Fight is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it is a, a movie that uh, self styles itself as Die Hard, but surrounding a school shooting. So you know that's a fucking horrible idea. Um, <laughs> It's dreadful. Uh, our it's, it's basically the story of our our protagonist, uh, this heroine, uh, whose whose name is Zoe. Uh, Zoe, who um, because of her, uh, you know, uh, self, you know, self uh, pariahing conservative uh, ideologies, uh, 
I mean, she basically speaks like, you know, like Ben Shapiro. She speaks like a 30-year-old conservative man throughout the whole movie. Um, but uh, the, the whole idea is that she is um, she's fighting back against these this crew of um, live streaming school shooters, uh, the lead of which Tristan Voy is is pretty much self-styling himself after like Heath Ledger's Joker across the board. It's it's very like clickety clack and it's utter sheer utter nonsense. The only reason I bring it to anyone's attention because no one should see it. But one thing that everyone should know about this movie because it's fucking crazy is that um, to deal with uh, to, on, on top of all this, uh, the lead character Zoe is reeling from the uh, e- 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 one year anniversary of the passing of her mother to cancer. Uh, she, her, the ghost of her mother, appears to her throughout the film, oftentimes early on with her head wrapped in like the you know I guess uh, cinematic parlance of this is a person with cancer or seeking cancer treatment kind of thing, and always holding this nice little mug of, of warm tea. Uh, while she gives her daughter the sagely advice about how she should let go. And this goes on into the point that like during the school shooting, which is now like a self-styled action sequence, even though it shouldn't be, the mother keeps appearing with this warm cup of tea and like giving her like the the titular advice uh, one line at a time, run, hide, fight. Uh, But each time, and this is the craziest fucking thing I've seen in a long time. Each time the mother comes back, the daughter Zoe has killed one of the school shooters because she, you know, she diehards that she kills them all eventually and saves the day by going back into a school shooting after having escaped it because that's conservative heroism, everybody. But every time the mother appears and she kills one of the school shooters, she has the ghost of her mother has more hair because she is gradually letting go of her mother's loss via killing school shooters, which is preparing her mother to be let go of her ghostly unresolved business of her daughter's mourning and preparing her to, I guess, ascend to heaven with a full head of hair after having died of cancer. It's fucking crazy. So it's awful and I wouldn't recommend seeing it, but that detail is unfathomable and worth sharing. So a bad movie, but jaw droppingly insane. What, what is this available on? Like, is this like something you can just rent? Anybody can rent on Amazon or is like, no, you got to get, you got to get it through daily wire. So I found it online for free because I'm not doing that. And even then I felt bad watching it. But again, that one detail was too insane to pass up. It's just madness. Wow. It would Um, be the worst movie of 2021 if it weren't for Tom and Jerry. So (laughs) that's where I'm at with it. I think that's the best review of Tom and the new Tom and Jerry ever. (laughs) Well, on that That's note, like relationship with Run, Fight, and Hide. It's like it's, it isn't as bad. No, that movie is not as bad as Tom and Jerry. Oh my god, that is that's absolutely hilarious. Yeah, well, I, think that's a gr- I think that's a great point to transition to what we're talking about today, uh, where somebody tries to run. I don't think there's much hiding, and there is some fighting. Uh, Stephen King's Misery. Sorry, Sam. Uh, Stephen King's, um, one of his classic adapted films, uh, Misery, which came out in 1990, um, starring Kathy Bates, James Caan. Uh, I saw this movie probably when I was like maybe in early middle school. So I kind of forgot a lot about it. But as I was thinking about cold movies, you know, Misery is as an idea and story that has been parodied so many times across uh, different shows and pop culture. And so, Dave, we were talking about The Shining, 
as maybe like an idea of like, that's just a cold movie. And I was like, Oh, misery. It's like, it's another Stephen King, very cold film. And so I'm really happy that I went with it. Cause it was, yeah, you know, in my opinion, a pleasure to revisit this movie. It kind of felt like the first time watching it since it's been so long um, since I watched it, but I just want to give a quick summary for folks who might not be aware of misery. And this summary comes from IMDb. After a famous author is rescued from a car crash by a fan of his novels, his number one fan, uh, he comes to realize that the care he is receiving is only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. Misery was directed by Rob Reiner, who starred in All in the, All in the Family. I didn't know that. Uh, he also directed Stand By Me, and it was actually that King adaptation, which convinced Stephen King to sell the film rights of Misery, but only if Reiner would direct or produce Misery. Uh, he also directed When Harry Met Sally, A Few Good Men, This is Spinal Tap, which he has a writing credit for as well. And he also directed The Princess Bride. Um, so I did not realize that Rob Reiner directed so many of those wonderful films. Uh, the screenplay was adapted by William Goldman, who uh, also was a novelist and a playwright. He wrote the novels and then adapted for film Marathon Man and The Princess Bride. Uh, Goldman won Oscars for writing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and writing All the President's Men. Cinematography was by Barry um, Sonnenfeld, who we've talked about before. He directed the Men in Black trilogy, directed Wild Wild West, and he was a cinematographer for Big, speaking of Thanksgiving. Uh, also the cinematographer for When Harry Met Sally. And he got a start by directing, uh, or you know, his early career was directing Coen Brothers films, including Raising Arizona. Uh, Misery stars James Caan as Paul, Kathy Bates, uh, Paul, the author, Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes, the woman who takes care of him, his number one fan, uh, also stars Richard Farnsworth as Sheriff Buster and Francis Sternhagen as his wife, Deputy Virginia. This was based on Stephen King's 1987 novel. So that's a pretty fast turnaround uh, from novel to film. And it had a budget of $20 million and grossed a total of $61.3 million. So definitely a hit. Uh, it was a hit with audiences, a hit with critics, and it actually netted Kathy Bates an Oscar for Best Actress. And it is currently the only Stephen King film to win an Oscar, um, which I found. Surprising, but also um, not surprising, but I just thought it was like, oh, wow, that's not something I've really thought of before. This movie has great performances. I think it's a really great kind of horror thriller blend. But before I kind of talk about what I enjoyed about this movie, uh, I want to turn it over to the group. Who has seen Misery before? Was it someone's first time watching it? So I guess we'll start there. Who's Has anybody seen it for the first time for this episode? Uh, Sam shook her head. Christine's given an iffy, maybe. Yeah, I've seen it many times before. Mm-hmm. I had only seen the ending, not the whole movie, like it would be on TV. So I'm going to count this as first, essentially a first watch. So Sam, you're in the same boat too. You've seen it a few times. Mm-hmm. It's also something that, right. I have seen it a few times, but it's also been referenced so many other times and other things that I've watched that like, there's nothing about this movie that could like surprise me these days. Um, and I watched it with a roommate who had never seen it before. And I was, I was like watching her watching it to be like, how much of this do you know? I feel like it's so, it's such a classic. And there was one part she like asked me, she was like, does, does she take an ax to his legs? And I was like, 
Oh, so there's a little bit here that you do know, like not quite, just like approximate knowledge of it. But it's just like, Mm -hmm. it's one of those movies, once you've seen it, it will never leave you. Never. It is very uh, evocative and I think has a really big staying power. Um, I also kind of, it's not my first viewing, but Christine, I kind of feel the same way. It is, feels like sort of a first viewing. And this has quickly jumped to one of my favorite um, Stephen King adaptations. But what's your folks sort of relationship with, Sam, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but Dave and Christine, your relationship with Misery, kind of thoughts on it. Uh, what was it like revisiting the Stephen King classic for cold movies? Uh, I, this is another movie that I would have seen when I was entirely too young to have watched it. So I got that out of the way early. Uh, I've seen it many times. And uh, it, it, like a lot of movies, is one of those movies where I'm like, this is, yeah, this is a pretty great movie. And then every time I go back and revisit it, I'm just like, God damn it, this movie's fantastic. So uh, yeah, I, I really adore it still. And I think it, there are little details that I forget um, about the movie every time in between viewings. But yeah, fantastic film. I really, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, I had a blast watching it. Um, I think it has a perfect blend of humor and menace. Like it's it's billed as like a as like a horror sort of thriller, but I read it really as just fundamentally like a dark comedy. And I think in the hands of Rob Reiner, you really do get the the comedy coming through. And I don't think I would have liked this movie as much if a director had chosen to really take it solely in the horror thriller direction, because I think what this, what makes this movie so memorable is not only the performances. uh, I think James Caan and Kathy Bates are just wonderful uh, opposites, but the way that Rob, like I haven't seen all of his movies, but I can definitely see in the characters of the sheriff and his wife, um, those moments of sort of, sitcom humor of like, you know, an older couple kind of just uh, sparring with one another and, and sort of dialogue that doesn't necessarily like add to the thrust of the plot, but that just gives you these random insights into like a relationship or just a sort of idiosyncratic moment uh, and a glimpse into, uh, into a, a funny side of a character like, uh, like Buster, the sheriff. And I, I think You also get that. I wouldn't, you know, I feel like a lot of the moments in the movie feel like they could be stage play. You know, you only have two characters Mm -hmm. and you really are seeing how these energies are battling and sort of this captive narrative. But it's not really a character study. Like you don't really get into the psyches necessarily of these people as much as the movie, I guess, maybe wants you to. What I found so compelling was like just sort of these wonderfully overblown perform like just like Kathy Bates is just a force to be reckoned with and it's it's a performance that is so memorable and so funny I don't necessarily feel like I'm like what it really is like making her tick I don't give a shit because her performance is so funny and I think I guess it's what I want to say is that the humor that comes through through the movie I think is really what makes it shine in my opinion and that I'm glad it wasn't taken as just a solely like dark psychological drama. The word that comes to mind for me is juxtaposition of where there's this really kind of terrifying situation, but there's levity to it, which I think just adds to this sense of dread and unease. I'm really glad um, you brought that point up, Christine, because that's something I definitely want to talk about. Um, Sam, kind of your thoughts on misery. 
Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> so this is getting, uh, speaking of psyche, this is probably getting a little bit too into mine, but um, I'm <laughs> a firm believer that, you know, you, you get a certain amount of tickets in your life. And once your tickets are completely punched, something's going to happen. You're either going to become like a hoarder. You're going to become this, you're going to become that. And for the longest time, I thought that like, if the right amount of things impacted me enough to give me enough trauma, like I would definitely be a hoarder. Like I'm like almost there anyway. But as I was rewatching this, I was like, you know what? It's either a hoarder or it's this. <laughs> I can really see myself just taking that like whoo, flip side of just obsessive fan, uh, dark comedy murderer. Who knows? Christine, you have me shook saying it's a dark comedy. Um, I think like in some ways, yeah, definitely. There's this one scene in particular where um, it's like after the the most like famous scene and uh Kathy Bass Annie she's outside and she's like hi pumpkin she like sees Paul inside and he just like (laughs) funniest thing oh Um, he's like oh you're such a tease or something or such a kidder or something um that I laughed for a very long time, but my roommates and I we were watching this together and was this Kathy Bates like first film role like first breaking into Hollywood role because she had been on like Broadway previously because if that's the case and like getting an Oscar win what that's insane this is for sure I'm not familiar with her previous filmography but this is for sure what made her a household name and like made her the Kathy Bates that we know today in the 21st century yeah she'd been acting since like 1971 but this is really kind of the big uh this is her big push in a lot of ways I was uh, watching uh, an interview from 1991 on um, Entertainment Tonight, and Kathy, uh, you know, Kathy Bates was saying that when her friend read the book and actually handed it to her and said, "You would be really great if they ever adapt this into a movie. Like, you should really read this, and you know, if it ever comes up, you should try to get it." And she's like, "Oh, that will never happen. You know, I'm just, I'm never going to get that role." And then, lo and behold, she did, and cinematic history was made. Is that a compliment, or is that? <laughs> I don't know. That's a great question. (laughs) I was just going to say, I would love to read the script as it was written down because I want to know if she ad-libbed some major moments, like especially Mm -hmm. when she, we'll get into the scene, but just when she's uh, berating him for his draft of the new novel he wants to write that's based on his childhood. And she's like, it's just, she's like, what are you going to, what do we say right here? She says something like, bitchly field core. Like, you're going to go scout to the pigs and say, give them bitchly feed. Give me that and bastarding I, pig feed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. It is. And I'm like, sh- did she ad lib this or was this actually written in the script? And there's so many moments where I want to know what was what she brought to the role and what was written down. That's one thing that's interesting, too, at the end of the film, when we get to the big blowout, not to spoil everything, but obviously we're going to just sort of like initially, yeah, she's very apprehensive about profanity. But then at the end, when it finally comes to blow, she's like, you cocksucker. And it's just like, whoa, (laughs) this is definitely a great example of building tension. Um, And really, you put two characters in a room and kind of just you, you let the actors do their thing. You let the script do its thing and you just kind of let the camera roll. It's not a very fancily shot movie. Although I think there are some great kind of like wide shots 
like, it's not like, you know, Denis Villeneuve shooting Dune, you know, not going for epic spectacle. I think it's, it, the movie knows what it needs to be. Well, it doesn't take place in another world. So yeah, I suppose you're right. <laughs> the snow must flow. <laughs> um, and so I guess let's just kind of dive into it. So the film opens with James Caan. He is, he writes these, I guess they're kind of like trashy romance novels, but they're incredibly popular. He's been made incredibly wealthy from this Misery series. That's the main character's name. Some sort of like hints of dark fantasy, 19th century melodramatic kind of series um, seems to be. A little confused about some of the plot points in the Misery <laughs> series. There's like a, a witch doctor who puts her to sleep and buries her underground later or something. So we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of the Misery uh, literary universe. But, but her he, full name, you have to say her full, her full name is Misery Chastain. Misery Chastain. <laughs> is the best name ever. <laughs> In some ways, this is an incredibly this is this is a very Stephen King story. You follow a very successful writer. Bad things happen to this writer uh, and antics ensue from there. And so the film opens with him finishing the latest book. He has champagne, one cigarette. I'm forgetting the third element. There's three. He has this like ritual as he's finishing and he has this like special like leather briefcase, like leather kind of briefcase that he puts the script in. And so he finishes it. He writes every book at this you know remote cabin in Colorado drives a 65 Mustang, which he, so he's very much like a creature of habit. And he has this routine with writing these books. Not only a creature of habit, but a creature of like a superstition in as an yeah. author too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Superstitious guy rides a 65 Mustang across the country. So he finishes this novel, has a cigarette, has some champagne, and then he's ready to drive back to New York and submit the novel. It's part of his superstition. He has one copy of this novel and that's the one that he has in his possession. And as he's driving a blizzard hits, since he's not from the town, you know, he doesn't know that there's an impending blizzard coming. His car gets knocked off the road, slides off. And then, you know, he, dying kathy bates you know annie wilkes she prop you know pries open the door at the crowbar and then drags him to his cabin and that's where you know his legs are all fucked up his like i guess collarbone or arm is broken of some sort and she's a nurse so she says and so she you know at first it seems very benevolent of oh you know the roads are closed the telephone lines are down i just so happened to be by and i you know, i saw you and i saved you and you know in two days everything will be back open and you know we'll be able to go and so at first annie is presented as this very sweet caring character and then slowly as the film progresses um we see more and more of this dark side of her and this incredibly unpredictable side of annie wilkes where it's hard to know what she's going to say next or feel next and you can't really predict what's going to happen so kind of thoughts on the sort of beginning chunk of this film of where you know, uh, Paul is first kind of trapped in here with the very caring uh, Annie. Sort of thoughts on, you know, these actors first coming together, these characters first meeting each other and the dynamic kind of setting itself up. There is no moment in this movie where I ever, you could ever believe that Annie is this benevolent <laughs> nurse who just so happened to stumble oh, really? upon this person. I perhaps I think so like if I was in this situation I had opened my eyes and I saw somebody like that having me in their home I would have been like 
I would rather die. Like literally leave me there. That's fine. This is t- first of all, all the, the way that his legs looked. Oh They're destroyed. God, that's, right? that's an awesome effect, <laughs> like practical effect. Yeah. Uh, the pain that he must have been in, the pain alone is enough for me to be like, I, I, kill me. Um, but just like all the other stuff that she has readily available, like I know she says she's a nurse, but like she's got the saline bag. She's got all of this other stuff. Ah, that's suspicious. Well, and the fact that you're waking someone up saying, I'm your number one fan. I'm your number one fan. Now, if you were in a hospital and the doctor was saying that, you would be like, get away from me. (laughs) Also, not for nothing. He's like heavily drugged at this point early in the film. And just delirious from the pain. Yeah, I would say I I found the film shocking. Like the funny thing is like. I can't imagine someone not knowing what this is going into it. Like uh, it's, it's misery. Like everyone knows what this is, but like, if you were seeing this for the first time, I feel like it would be like, it'd be like 20 minutes up until you're like, wait, what's supposed to happen in this movie until it kind of starts to creep in. So yeah, for me, I, I was, I was pretty taken aback as someone who knows where it's going and like really paying attention to how um, sort of like doting and like, caring she is early on but that being you know a veiled glimpse of who she really is so yeah i don't know and i think it's really endearing how much she reveres him as a writer i think it's interesting that i watched this movie kind of at this time i have youtube and twitter and you know internet celebrities and all of that like parasocial behavior is like something i've just kind of been looking up a lot over the past couple of weeks and so it's sort of funny to think about like a 1990 version of like somebody's isolated on their own they don't you know there's no internet no twitter no way to kind of feel like you can build up this online interaction with these celebrities and so i think it's at first like pretty endearing of how like she's connected with these books you know we do a movie podcast we all four of us have connected with fictional characters and fictional stories and so it's i think true. that's And I think that's a really like great way to draw audiences in of like, I, you know, these things are like really important and she's so honored to like help take care of him. But I think the film does a really great job of sort of unraveling like, oh, this is your, something's not quite right here. And there's a few moments where she like lets something slip. I don't know how James Conn, how Paul didn't hear that. Like when, oh, I've been watching you at night. There's like a few moments here or there that seem a little like, that's pretty telling. How did you not pick up on that? But I think overall, this film is like a masterclass in building tension and just how the stakes just get ratcheted up higher and higher and higher of how, you know, Paul realizes that he's in this incredibly desperate uh, situation and just brutal scenes of him trying to just get out of a room. I think I just love when films portray something that's like a pretty simple action on paper with such like brutality of like, he's just trying to get out of a room, but the process of him dragging himself across the room and lock picking and slowly, you know, trying to like, as someone who's currently disabled, trying to navigate this small, like two bedroom house, I think is also like an incredibly effective way to like ratchet up the horror elements and, uh, the thriller kind of elements of it and the tension of it all for real. And you know what else? Like the, the body horror of it all of like him falling out of the bed and you just like, I, my whole body was clenched as this was happening. You know, what's going to happen. You know how painful it is, but still like going through the journey. is like, Oh God, this is the worst thing. 
Yeah, James Conn does a great job of conveying just the sheer anguish of physical pain that he's going through. At first, I was kind of like, he seems to be calmer about the whole situation than I would be. But then, I mean, to Dave's point, he's being drugged. So that's definitely going to be affecting his ability to like respond, like respond. And then obviously later in the movie, he's playing into the entire situation and, and, and is acting uh, in order to set up a ruse to escape. But at first when he's opening his eyes, I'm like, dude, you're like trapped. Why are you not? And when the and it's when the camera's on his face when he's alone, I, I thought he would, you know, reveal some like stress on his face. But I think that's all made up when you see him trying to get in and out of like his bed and then the wheelchair later on, and you just see that glimpse of his bruised and battered legs. And as Annie is describing the compound fractures he endured after the car, you're like, all of this is so gross, but really serving like the audience or like serving the purpose of the audience, understanding the pain that he's really going through and how like fucked he is (laughs) in this situation. And it's a great example too of specificity of where every time, like he's so kind of so consistent with, his pain, the level of it. Um, and then, you know, when he's exaggerating later, but every time he moves his right arm, like it's just an incredibly specific and consistent performance, which I just think is incredible. Uh, so the movie really takes a turn when Annie realizes that he has the latest novel, which unbeknownst to her is really the final misery novel. We get a little flashback as after he finished uh, the latest work, the latest draft with his uh, literary agent. And he's like, I want to write something that means something that people will respect. I feel like another very Stephen King, very kind of common attitude, <laughs> writer attitude to have. And so he, d- he wants to be known for more than just these misery kind of trashy books is what he, he wants more out of his career than just this. There's something really interesting to that too, in a way that's twofold too, in the way that this this was a book that King wrote about not only his audience, his, his established audience's expectation of his work and his want to branch out and explore broader themes, um, while also being a book about his own addiction, which is, is largely what he said the book is about. But one thing that's really interesting too is that Rob Reiner was handed the keys to this movie because after making films like um, it, Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, um, When Harry Met Sally, he was kind of known as like, you know, like, oh, it's Jughead you know, or Meathead from, um, from All in the Family. And now he's making these comedy movies. That makes sense. And then he goes and like, is like, well, look, I, I can do... I can direct well. I can like throw you a curveball and make it really land and stick. And he he really nails it in this film. So I think there is like a kind of harmony to what Stephen King was going for and what Reiner were going for uh, that really suits Khan's character, Paul, in this film. Yeah, I fully agree with that. It's such a great example of taking a, I've never read the novel. I assume it's very good. <laughs> taking a good novel, popular novel, uh, and adapting it. This is a great example of of uh, adapting a work. And Reiner, I think, just such a, a great choice. And Christine, you mentioned these sitcom moments. We got to just briefly talk about uh, the sheriff and his wife. <laughs> um, what a wonderful 
side kind of like subplot and i wasn't quite sure like i said it's been a while so i knew like the major beats of the film but totally forgot about the sheriff and his wife um and how this is really like the crux of the movie of where paul is he's this missing author everybody you know they later find his car in the snow so assume he died in the blizzard but the sheriff he's suspicious he sees some marks on the car door he's like something's up like this guy is just not going to go missing not going to talk um and the journey that he goes on uh, to kind of uncover this, which eventually leads him to reading all of the misery books, um, which I think is just absolutely delightful. And the banter between him and Virginia is just so endearing. And I think adds great, like really needed moments of levity in, in the hands of somebody else could be an incredibly oppressive. What does he say? Like, that's the spice. That's the sarcasm oh, that he has there given our marriage the spice it needs or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> It's also yeah. great because it's like they it's like that is kind of a functional relationship that you're seeing because there aren't there are like essentially four, maybe five characters in the entire. You've got a uh, who plays his agent. Oh, Lauren Bacall, which I was like, oh, my gosh, Lauren Bacall. Oh, stunning. Um, so you've got like five characters in the movie. And so I think that uh, Buster and his wife are great sort of oil pairs for <laughs> Annie and uh, who, what's James Kahn's character? What's the writer's name? Paul. Oh, Paul, Paul, right. Uh, I also want to give a, uh, Richard Farnsworth a shout out because I was like, I recognize this guy. I don't know if you guys have watched the Anne of Green Gables series that was produced. It was a Canadian production from like the 80s. He plays Matthew Cuthbert. And this Anna Green Gables series is like what I grew up on and is like such a big part of my childhood. And suddenly seeing who I, Richard Farnsworth, who's who's Matthew Cuthbert, her, her like adopted father in Anna Green Gables in another movie, I was like, oh my God, I hope he's a good, he's like a good and gentle and great character. And sure enough, Buster is what I know Richard Farnsworth to be, but Listeners out there, if you know of the Santa Gray and Gable series and you know Matthew Cuthbert, he is oh, so near and dear to my heart. But what a great performance from Richard Farnsworth, too. Well, and he's so sincere in that he really so thinks sincere. something's wrong and really wants yeah. to try to, like, help this guy and, like, just figure out, like, something suspicious, something weird's going on. I just think one fi- one moment I just have to bring up is when they're uh, him and Virginia are in the car together, like, kind of like investigating and then virginia goes like touches knee and he's like virginia in this car you're my deputy not my wife <laughs> and, he's, and then she gives some retort about how she'd you know I'd rather rather be in bed and i just think that was just there are so many wonderful moments between these two that i think are much not something that i would think would be needed in a film like this and i assume they're in the novel um but just what they're a not. smart they're not. Whoa. Well, no, it's like these, the writer these characters moments. are inflated as, as like a foil. Yeah. Because like in Harry Met Sally, you've got obviously the Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan plot. But then you have those moments where it'll be old couples on the bench talking about their relationships. And and I felt like Buster and Virginia were were playing that role in this movie that I loved those moments in like a movie like When Harry Met Sally. It's like, well, I met, you know, I met Jack in 1952 and we were at the table eating spaghetti and all that stuff. And I, I just loved, 
yeah, those moments in that movie. And I think that brings that energy into misery as well. It's one thing that really blew my mind this time watching it, where I was just like, there's so much that came after this that I truly adore as films that I can kind of trace back in a way to some of the tone of this film. Like, I mean, Fargo, you have Norm and Norm and Margie. They're sort of like dynamic. It reminds me a lot of this character, the in, in like a more sarcastic way, but in an equally loving and lived in way with, uh, with this uh, sheriff and his wife. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Sh- Silence of the Lambs in terms of some of its shooting and tone. It reminds me a whole lot, and strangely enough, of the Adams Family movies, which were directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who did the cinematography for this movie, because there are so many close-up shots of faces that are really dramatic. There are close-ups on specific objects. And that also hearkening back, too, to the, the process that Reiner went through, where he was like, I've never made a thriller before, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to watch a shitload of Hitchcock movies. Mm-hmm. And this movie rings of Hitchcock all the way through and that attention to like the tension of viewing an object with importance. You know what I mean? Because that comes up so many different times because this is a movie that is so claustrophobic and insular and contained to one set for the most part that individual objects are hyper important and in a way that uh, wouldn't be out of place in something like a Hitchcock film. So this movie has such a like language of cinematic lineage to it, both uh, as far as um, homage and as far as what uh, what followed it, that it's like a treasure trove of little nuggets that is really great. And you never get lost in where you are or where objects are. Uh, a lot of this film is him. You know, he once he kind of catches on that and he's not quite right, he stops taking the pills. He keeps that, you know, opens a hole in the mattress and shoves them in. So there's just great tracking too, like a great consistency and specificity, which I brought up earlier um, that I think brings true to all of that. So things really ratchet up for Annie and Paul when Annie reads this draft and she is livid that Misery is dead, um, that Paul is killing her off. And she reveals that it's God has told her that this is not his call, that this is not what Paul should be doing. And that it's Annie's calling to make sure that Paul delivers the best possible version of Misery and that Paul's not living up to his, ex, you know, to what his creative potential is. And so she forces Paul to burn the manuscript. Um, and this really dramatic scene where she drags this barbecue grill in lighter fluid on the script. And Paul's like, well, I'm not going to do this. And as you know, Annie's kind of talking and um, teasing is not the right word. It's sort of like um, taunting him. That's it. Is pouring lighter fluid on her in such like a casual manner that it's somewhat comedic. Like it's like, I think kind of tapping into this dark comedy idea of like, ah, lighter fluid all kind of all over him. And just James Conn's reaction to this whole situation. It's, it's also kind of interesting too how much it shows that how much he's given away of himself to his public because like she's immediately like he's his defense is like well you know Andy I, I can go ahead and burn this but that won't mean anything because other people already have this draft and she's like no I know you too well for that Paul I'm your number one fan you you're very superstitious and you only carry around one copy so I know no one else has this and calling him out on it and quoting so, an interview well, yeah, I feel like today in the internet age, it's like, oh, most information is released out and people get hold of like ri- writing rituals and like, you know, aspects of someone's life. But in 1990, you, like you got to divulge that information in order for your number one fans to like know that. Yeah. 
And you also have to catch it. Like, I think about all the times that like Chris Evans has been on Good Morning America and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not going to wake up to watch that because I know I can just go on the internet later if I feel like I need to and catch it then. But like the dedication that you, that a person would have to go through in order to be like, I need to know these things. I have to like tape this show. I have to read this article. I could not keep up with it, but I can see how it happens. That's why I'm saying one like couple false moves, and I could see myself going in this direction. I really could. Watch out, Chris Evans. (laughs) Yeah, watch out. (laughs) Be careful when you're in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia area, Chris Evans. I, I think that's what makes Annie such a compelling character is she is unhinged and unpredictable, but I think she's very sympathetic to an extent. Um, I think we can understand where she came from. And of course her actions are not justified at all, but we can see how she kind of arrived at this point. We learn later on, which we'll get into probably shortly, kind of her background, but she you know, talks about her husband leaving her. She was prepared, finding comfort in his novels and in the story of misery. Bates in interviews talked about how she imagined Annie Wilkes talking like, you know, wanting to be like a ninth, in a 19th century, like um, novel and how she like tries to like be more than she is and views herself. Like she wants to escape this world and this novel, these novels have allowed her to do so. So I just wanted to, this is a question I had to ask. How sympathetic do you feel Annie Wilkes is and how does that play into how you view the movie and, or, and enjoy it? This is a great question because the movie does a good job of blurring those lines. Mm-hmm. Like she's objectively troubled in a violent way, obviously, as the movie plays out. And not only as the movie plays out with her and and Khan, Paul, um, but her past, which we come to discover. But the movie does set set aside so many moments where Bates can deliver this sort of insight into her interiority beyond the apparent mania and what fuels it uh, in a way that is, it, it, it certainly doesn't validate anything that she does. It doesn't make her a sympathetic character, but it, it blurs the lines of what an audience expects of a menacing force or realizing an underlying humanity in spite of that. I don't know. It's, it's like, it's the one scene in particular where she's, she's, she shows him that she's got the gun or shows him that he's got, she's got the gun and is like, look, this is going to end this way. But before she pulls that out, like, it's this long, very slow explanation of how, like, you know, I, sometimes I just see the rain and it makes me sad. And, like, it gives me the blues. And it really, like, it's the first time that we see her character, like, meditative and self-reflective rather than, like, gushing about him. So it really, it does a really cool job of, like, teasing a lot of things out um, in what would within the context of the film and the narrative be like a menacing force, but does allow that it's, yeah, in in a way that, again, doesn't validate anything that she does, but makes it more interesting. You know, it's so interesting you say that because obviously uh, I find her a sympathetic character because I just compared myself to her if things go wrong. But the, the one thing holding me back is that she has that, like a photo album of all the things that she's done. Seems like a bad idea, right? I'm sorry. I feel like there's a little bit more agency here. So like, like, like a pinch sympathetic, perhaps. 
I feel like I felt like as if I was to go down the road of really looking at this movie as like Annie Wilkes character study and like that it there I, I agree Dave that there are moments of like like revealing interiority as you mentioned but I feel like I would want the movie to serve her well in other ways if it was really going down the route of being like we're gonna get to the core of like what makes this character tick. I, I think I would ask of the movie a lot more, but I think that because the movie incorporates humor and therefore there are sort of some slapstick elements to some of the scenes and sort of not slapstick per se, but there, but there is sort of this, like, as Connor said, this levity to some moments in the, in the like absurdity of it all. I think it, it doesn't ask or it doesn't make me ask more of the movie because I can enjoy the, the like humor in it. I, I don't quite know what I'm getting at, but I, I feel like if the movie was really wanting us to grapple with who this character of Annie Wilkes is, I would ask more of it, but. And I don't think that's the goal is to do a character that, study. It's to no, present this, yeah. which I think is, we get these moments, which I think work really well. One moment, Christine, when you mentioned sort of these moments of levity is when she, you know, James, you know, he's bedridden. So he, you know, pisses in a, in a jar and she takes, you know, by these other bodily functions. And as she's talking to him, similar to the lighter fluid, she's shaking the piss jar, kind of like just nonchalantly as she's just like gesturing with her hands. And he, I just love the look of he, you see his eyes tracking the bottle. Like this is just so absurd. Like so much of the situation is incredibly absurd but it's also grounded in the filmmaking and the cinematography and the performances that it's really just a tour de force of let's put some people in a room, weird things are going to happen. Tension's going to build and then eventually just all explodes. And to, to, to credit Kathy Bates, because I, I, like her performance is so multidimensional because she's just a tour de force and a force to be reckoned with. And it's so much fun watching her do her thing. And so, yeah, and I, I totally agree that I, that's not the point of the movie. But I feel like in other hands, in other screenwriting and director's hands, I feel like it could have veered in a direction that I, I don't know. I might Ima- not Imagine if this is a Blumhouse watch. movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love some Blumhouse films for sure, but this, this needed, I feel like, a Rob Reiner kind of touch. And I think about that with the dinner scene as well. So... We're, you know, we haven't talked too much about the plot yet. So Burns the novel, Kathy Bates, uh, you know, Andy Wilkes, like, all right, you got to write this. And so she gets him a typewriter. Uh, it was discounted because the end key is missing. That's a little Stephen King-ism. His first typewriter had the end key missing, which is just, that's just, I think, a cute little reference. And so he has to then write a book, a better, a new book to her approval that has to live up to her standards. And the consequences are pr- quite literally life or death. And so the scene, I've, you know, this is part of the movie too that has been parodied a lot of like he's typing and then like, you know, kind of typing away. We have a montage and she's like reviewing these editions and he's sort of trying to figure out how to play Annie. And I think he, you know, he thinks he's kind of figured it out. They're, you know, finishing the draft and he invites, says, oh, Annie, do you want, Paul says, Annie, do you want to have dinner with me to like celebrate? And he's been saving the pill capsules and keeping the like, you know, um, anti-pain, a sleeping powder, in, like a little paper container. 
And so I just love this dinner scene of where in her, like just two characters in the same room with two totally different mindsets of what's going on. It's just a great example of, you know, different motivations at work. And I just thought a scene is like to misery. And then Kathy Bates is saying to misery is like the character. And he's saying to misery of his current situation is how I read that. And I just thought it's like, there are so many absurd moments that are like kind of laughable of just kind of how like, Oh, a candle at dinner. She has one candle, like at the or and she pronounced like Dom Perignon wrong, Dom for Joan or something. So it's just like all these weird, absurd moments later on in the film as this, I just feel like are so deftly handled that could be too wacky where all the tensions diffused or so self-serious that it's oppressive. I just think we've said this, I feel like several times so far, but Reiner and crew just do such a great job of staying the course and knowing what the tone of this project should be. And veering away from like, Oh, you get the, you get the, you know, Stephen King, like theme theme of like writer dealing with uh, the constraints of, of their reputation and the types of stories, you know, Stephen King loves sort of allegory and theme and metaphor, all that stuff. But I think it veers away from like the seriousness of that. It certainly comes through in the movie, but if it played it too much, like this is a dead serious, you know, writer's experience of the constraints of, you know, being known for only one thing. And I'm going to use the device of like a woman obsessed with me to like follow that through. I feel like that gets into like, I don't know, territory that I, I don't necessarily think ages well, but I think that it, it veers away from that because it's such a fun movie to like, to watch, I would say. I think that's the true strength of this movie, Christina. Yeah, it's like, it would be so easy for this movie to be like a story in which she is like just, and to return to her being occasionally sympathetic or like, you know, her interiority being illuminated. It would be so easy for her to just be like a menacing, like nurse ratchet figure. Like, you know, your your one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And it would be, it would cheapen it because I think this movie is chiefly about or not chiefly about but one one of the huge elements of it is subverting gendered expectations of thrillers he is incapacitated he is in a position where he is not as physically able to fight the person holding in in captivity and and sweep and swapping those roles would come off as her being just objectively like a monster if it weren't for cleverly and like smartly uh, illuminating her interiority because otherwise it's just it's just oh james Conn is imprisoned by this this woman this crazy maniac lady and it's like no there is more depth to it than that and that's necessary if you're going to invert those two expectations and she's not a femme fatale right like there's no real sexual component to this capturing either which is like a way the movie could the story could go that is like very iffy and probably best that it, like this is just doing something different it's subverting expectations as you mentioned and it's one of those things too where like i feel like i've heard people be like oh my god look at this we're, we're gonna give the academy award to kathy bates who's playing a psychotic woman and it's like well first of all she's playing it with a tremendous amount of nuance and and, and, and subtext as a character, but also how many times have we given, you know, the Academy award to a man that acts like a fucking maniac in a movie? Like wh- why not if it's done well and she does it great. So she and her it. performance is so 
fucking good. Like, yeah. I don't know the, her energy that she just brings into the room. I, yeah, I, I, I could have just watched her do her thing for, for so long. And I want to sit down with Kathy Bates and like, talk to her about the experience of making this movie. <laughs> One moment that I think really highlights her dynamism. That's a word. Her dynamic, you know, the dynamic range she has with this role is, and this is tying nicely to kind of progressing along the plot. So Sheriff Buster is getting wise. She, you know, he, we learned that Kathy, that Annie Wilkes has probably killed her, her father has killed, you know, her fellow nursing students has killed babies in the hospital. Um, and she, and she's kept all of this in a memory book with like newspaper clippings. Like she's proud of these moments. <laughs> My crimes, the, the photo journal. Yeah. And it's like a red leather bound face. It says it's well worn. It says memory lane in like leather print on the front. And so we learned that like, and that's when James Conn is like, wow, these are okay. This is a life or death situation before he's gotten hints that this is like, I forget exactly. You know, I think the gun, this happens after the gun scene. But the idea of like, okay, she is a murderer and I will die. That is kind of where I'm at. And so the sheriff at reading the book writes down a quote about lawmen and, you know, about, you know, there's no greater law than the law of God, essentially, which is what Annie Wilkes said at her, you know, she was leaving the courthouse from one of her trials. And so that's how, you know, he finds out that, oh, she's obsessed with this writer. Something's fishy here with her. And so it's just a great scene of like the sheriff coming at the house inspecting around but it's i feel like there's such a way where like in the if this was made today there'd be like as he's like walking through the house all this like super dramatic music to like tell us what's going on Uh but it's shot just kind of like any other sort of scene and the tension comes that we build it ourselves and Bates does such a great job of kind of downplaying this performance she hides him in this uh hides James Conn in the basement with this kind of like hiding, you know, this hidden door. And there's a scene where, you know, sheriff, you know, in this small town in Colorado, can I come in? Sure. Oh, I'm being rude. Come on in sheriff. Come look around. And the sheriff can pretty much do whatever he wants because this is a small town. Everybody trusts the sheriff. Nobody theoretically has anything to hide. So he can go from room to room and that's kind of fine. And so Kathy, you know, Annie comes up with this whole story of where, Cause he's like, Oh, she, he goes to the general store. She's buying a lot of paper. Cause she has to buy paper for Paul to write the new book. And so she says, Oh, I'm trying to be the next Paul. I was so devastated to hear about his death. And he keeps wanting to inspect and trying to get away from her. Um, and he offers to make some cocoa and there's a scene. I'm, this is all building to this really great moment where he is looking through the room where Paul was being held captive. And there's this great, moment where he leans out of the door out of the doorway into the hallway and Annie's leaning out and smiling he leans back into the room and then he goes back out and Annie's like mirroring him to see what he's looking at and it's such like Annie has such a playful quality to her as well that is funny but also incredibly unsettling and the sheriff finds it very unsettling as well and there's even like a little jump scare moment where he's in the like her old children's room I guess she had children who died I, I believe. Um, and so he's I thought in that there. was her room, but tell me more. Did she have well, with children? The, with, the, with the two beds, there's a room with two beds in it, two small beds for children upstairs. Oh, I feel like that ties into her her thing with the infants where it was like she's constantly seeking connection to other people right. that she can control and therefore she has killed infants because of that obsessiveness, yeah. 
Right. Because so she has children no she doesn't have. Yeah. Correct. So she doesn't have kids. So she has this weird like bedroom and she has, and she's behind him with the cocoa. And in a modern movie, it'd be bomb, like big sound cue to tell the audience to be scared that she's behind him. But now it's just played quietly, like no, no music, no score behind it. And I just love how this is like the fact that there is no score and that this is shot so standardly and the performance, her performance just really ratchets, ratchets up the tension of this investigation of the house and Paul's drugged. So he's like really trying to like wake up from this drugging to make a noise, uh, you know, the hit the barbecue in the basement. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, though this scene doesn't really prominently display it, um, the soundtrack by or the score by uh, Mark Shaman is incredible. And it like, it harkens so, so deeply back to Hitchcock where it is it, as Connor, as you described, not showy, it's more orchestral and it's more about building atmosphere than it is about telegraphing what's going on. Yeah. Wild stuff. And also this sequence in particular, yeah, with him investigating the house is very like, it, it feels beat by beat to me. Not, not in a way that's like derivative, but in a way there's homage to like psycho, you know what I mean? I mean, if you're going to like going through the house, if you're going to borrow techniques, like Hitchcock is one of the best people ever to borrow cinematic techniques from, for sure. And so Paul, he finally is like, he's conscious enough and he bangs the like barbecue grill, the sheriff's outside. And I thought that was a great kind of turnaround. Oh, he's out of the house. He's not going to hear it. But he hears this like clattering sound, thinks it's Annie who fell, genuinely thinks that it's like Annie who fell, it seems pretty genuine, goes in and then Annie's just gone and he hears this noise figures out the trick door in the basement and this was a really shocking scene where the sheriff just gets fucking blown away hole in the chest with a double-barreled shotgun although classic stephen king you know it's like you've seen the shining anytime someone's trying to you like you somebody you're rooting for catches on and is trying to intervene they're it reminds me it. of the Simpsons parody of The Shining where Oops, Groundhouse, uh, Groundskeeper Willie comes in and it's just like, I'm here to save the lot of you. And then he just gets the axe in the back and is like, oh, is that the best you could do? And then just falls over dead. <laughs> I think that's a, a strength of the film is that even though this has been parodied and King has his beats that he loves and his themes, that moment still got me of like, this is a character we built up and we've cared so much about. Oh, the hero's finally gonna, you know, something like, oh, some progress is moving. He's gonna use, and it just it feels resolved. Away. Yeah, and then it's just like, bam! Hole in the chest, and it's not played, the movie does get gory in a little bit uh, of runtime, but just big hole in the chest and he just falls down the stairs dead. What a heartbreaking scene. Also, yeah, before that, we, have, we haven't talked about the, uh, the big yeah. scene. The hobbling. So I believe through twice, at least, um, Paul James Conn has been going around the house in the wheelchair, does a bobby pin to unlock the door because she locks his, you know, the guest room door. And he's like, oh, that actually worked, which is kind of like a funny self-referential movie moment. And he explores the house. He puts a penguin figurine falls and he like replaces it wrong, which is a Hitchcock little detail where we zoom in and go penguin facing the wrong way. This is important. Then it comes up like 40 minutes later. And so in order to stop him from going around and he, you know, got a knife and he drugs him and then puts a block of wood between his let his ankles and takes a sledgehammer and breaks his ankles in a surprisingly reserved scene where we imagine the pain more than well, like, 
Wait, no, I would not just see that first ankle You literally see the foot go a full 90 degree tilt to the right. And that's it. There's that one moment, and that is gory and gruesome, but it's not, we're zooming in and we're like seeing his bones popping out. Like, I feel like today that scene, and in the book, this fair. is a huge okay, departure. Fair, fair. Yeah, in I the mean, book it's tastefully is, reserved, but it's enough. And that's the perfect balance, which is, we've been talking about a lot, is we see the one ankle just bend 90 degrees. We don't see the other one and we see his, we live in the pain that Paul, that James Conn is emoting. And in the book, he gets his foot chopped off. Right. And so Reiner, this was, that was in the original um, adapted script, but Reiner said that's too gory, right? Like people are going to think it's maybe a little goofy, like let's make it something not as chopping foot off. And so he, I don't know who came up with the idea for the hobbling, but block of wood between the legs, you break both ankles totally. And the person can't walk. And it's just a brutal. And I mean, for sure, one of the most famous scenes in horror history, for sure. It just, it, it so reminds me, every time I watch it, it reminds me of the first time I saw it, which again, I was way too young, but just remembering her coming into the into the room with a sledgehammer and a block of wood. And he's just like, Annie, whatever you're thinking of doing, please don't do it. And as the audience, I'm just like, oh my God, I don't know what it is, but don't do it. And then when she puts it between his, his ankles and you just see her teeing up as she's explaining the process, it's just like, you know it's going to happen, but up until the moment it actually happens, you're like losing your mind and squirming. Like, and still every time I've seen this movie in excess of like 12 times. And just the other day watching it was just like, fuck, I gotta look away. This is too much. Oh my God. Which is so powerful and really a credit to this movie in the way that she explains what's going to happen as it's occurring in a way that it almost feels like there's no way this could, I'm going to see this in this movie. And then it happens. And it's conveyed in such like a folksy way, like a, a style of like her draw, like her, the way she talks of like, it sounds comforting that like, she's thinking that she's providing comfort. By Even describing, after she does the first leg, she's just like, it's okay. Just one more to go. Yeah. Just such a, a brutal scene. And, a, and I just, the scene's just fantastic. And really this is when we're getting act, act two peak of like this, you know, he, Paul cannot be lower. Like how he feels like he is the lowest of the low at this point of where he felt some control of where he can now walk around. He's building up some, you know, not really walk, but he's building up strength and then he's hobbled and he just feels so defeated. So just a great structural point of like, you know, we have about 30 minutes of the movie, 40 minutes of the movie left and he just feels so incredibly low. Any other thoughts on the hobbling? I mean, I guess Something that I had brought up uh, at the beginning was uh, if I had looked at my legs at that moment, I would have just given up. At what point in the movie do you think you would have just like cashed it in and been like, ah, I'm I'm either going to like call it or I'm just going to like go along with it. Or do you think you would do like a Paul Sheldon and eventually like fight your freedom? I think that's what's so cool about this movie is that he is a writer and is a writer of like, well, not necessarily horror stories. I guess it's not really true. Um, but just just his being writerly, his being able to like come up with scenarios that he can manipulate the situation, even in his limited power and disadvantage um, to kind of like schmooze over things for his for his betterment, um, I think is, 
is really interesting, especially as we get like to the end of the movie, uh, just before the big row and everything uh, after the, the the sheriff is shot. But yeah, I don't know. Well, um, like I, I think I would have, I, I would have, it would have been like the moment when she was like uh, saying like, if you, if I, if anything happens to me and I die, you are going to die. I'd be like, well, how far is this fall from the second story window? I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> I would have been out. Of, I would have been either dead or out of there earlier than this. I kind of wanted to know how much time had passed between the initial action of him arriving at the house and him write it writing the entire new misery book where he rewrites like he like brings chapters. misery he brings misery chestain back from the dead and that whole dialogue about how he's going to do it is so funny uh we're we're still thinking of within the season of a winter right i guess because you see the thaw of the spring but he's been there for at least like two to three months okay, maybe three, four yeah. three four many three, weeks yeah by that point, I feel like I would have just been like, I guess I'm living here and I'm going to just write whatever the hell she wants me to write. It's funny to see him like in those monta- writing montages where you see him sort of like suggesting a sense of like writerly accomplishment. He's like banging out these chapters on the typewriter. He's using the typewriter as like a... Um, as a like a, a dumbbell, Wait. a lift to, to strengthen his arm muscles. It's quite a great montage. Well, I think that but, just adds another layer of juxtaposition of like, this is somebody who has felt so superstitious about his writing process. And in this extreme circumstance, his output is incredibly fast. Now, I don't know if he views it, like we don't really get an insight into how he feels about this book or like his the, the, the um, quality of the writing. But I just thought that was also like a nice little element too, that it doesn't really touch on, but I was thinking about of like, maybe there's a sense of freedom that the well, situation has caused, which come, which comes in the play at the end. Exactly. I mean, we got to talk about the climax, but when he's talking to his agent, Lauren Bacall at the end, he's like, in many ways, like, did he, did he say she saved me or like the situation, so, something to the effect that going through that entire ordeal brought him some sense of of freedom of some like writerly freedom from the constraints that he was feeling before which or, is kind of yeah or like pushed him to greater heights yeah push it right 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 which is <laughs> it's it's and it's after she asks him if he would consider actually writing a fictional or a dramatized version of what happened to him being like, do you want to draw on your real life trauma <laughs> that you just went through? Yeah. And that's how I guess the big blowout. Yeah. Right. Back to real life trauma. We can talk about the, the big climactic scene. So when the sheriff dies, Annie, know, like she's, she's with it enough with reality to know she just killed the sheriff. Her, her days are limited. There's probably, she probably has 24 hours, the 48 at the best to survive. And so Paul's like, oh, well, we got to finish the book, which is a clever moment. Yeah, she literally shot the sheriff's <laughs> But we did not meet the deputy. No, not seen, unfortunately. And so pretty cleverly, so she's going to be like, I got two bullets, one for you, one for me. And Paul's like, well, we got to, we got to give the world misery. We'll live on. Like she'll live on after And that's us. him, yeah, as a writer being like, okay, fuck, I'm about to die. Um, let me finish the book first. <laughs> Give me till morning. <laughs> then there's just the big blowout fight. 
which is incredibly gory. Also, um, just the stakes of it, too. Oh, my God. Oh, the first initial thing where she walks. He, he's really schmoozing it up and being like, all right. Well, the book is over, Annie. So we're about to celebrate. You know what we have to do. And she's like, yes, Paul. Yes. You need your champagne and your cigarette. Let me get it for you. And he's like, uh, Annie, thank you so much for helping me write this book. This time we'll need a two glasses. And she walks out of the room. He has the one match for his cigarette, which he lights the manuscript on fire, this cherished manuscript that she's been absorbing chapter by chapter in real time. And like her final fulfillment and like her, her notion that like, oh, the character misery will live on because of Paul and I's work. And then she comes back into the room and he's just got the one last burning page. And is like, you remember this mystery about misery and the character? You remember these unanswered questions about whether or not it's going to resolve this way? well, fuck you. And then it just starts burning it. And he says, before he burns it, it's just like, what are you about? To, what are you doing? It's like, I learned it from you because she burned his manuscript, which is, oh, it's so satisfying. Set up a payoff. It, these simple techniques are so powerful. And then that's when she tries to put the fire out. There's this whole um, yeah, row fight between the two of them a pretty brutal scene of her like him taking the burning ashes and shoving it in her mouth you sick twisted fuck Fuck. (laughs) i think the end you know we've been going for quite a while now recording Uh, the end uh maybe a little too much i don't know that's really interesting for me to hear you say as someone who was not a fan of hush yeah because it does feel like these movies do kind of like a similar thing where like mm-hmm. it's like gradual introduction of violence until a blowout at the end. But I feel like it's way more earned in this than by by contrast to that. So that's interesting. I agree that you're right, but I also think it might have been a little overkill. <laughs> it's pretty Is extreme, that, to be fair. It, yeah. And so she falls on the typewriter, thinks she maybe it's the fact that it's the trope of you think she's dead, but then she comes back. It's like, I don't know, maybe the, it was that element of it. And so pretty yeah. brutal slant takes the was statue of an elephant and beats her to death with it. Like, this is the big. It's the pig. But it's every, misery. Oh, it's the, the misery pig. It is the pig, yes. But everything is so over the top. Every element of this movie is so over the top yeah. that I feel like the only way to resolve, you like, you know that it's going to result in a showdown between the two of them. And I feel like tonally everything is so over the top that the fight, the final fight has to be completely wild. And I mean, it's pretty nasty and really gnarly, but I I thought it kind of fit the tone and I, I wasn't, yeah. I mean, I had seen this. And so I was like ready for it. Maybe that kind of lessened or like dulled the blow, so to speak, but I was like, yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. It's all been leading to this. Maybe it's just the paper in the mouth was like surprising. I forgot about that. <laughs> but it's so good. You said it is really good. Fuck. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I got to admit, I really love it. And so he wins. James Caan is uh, victorious. But as we learn 18 months later, he's written a new book. It's going to be a New York Times bestseller. You know, it's going to be the book that he's always wanted to write. But he but mentions he's, re- he's rewritten the book that she burned is basically what it is. It's like because he it was about his like childhood and growing up. And that's what the title is. It's like the higher education of so and so. So that was the manuscript that she burned. But he managed to remember enough to, to produce it. Hmm. I guess I missed that part of it. That's a good, it's a good detail. 
And so they're at this restaurant with his literary agent. And then he's like, sometimes I still see her. And then you see Kathy Bates dressed as uh, one of the servers with like the dessert tray come out and holding the big knife like in her house. And so this interesting kind of, you know, there is a resolution to the situation, but his mental state, I think, is a nice kind of ambiguous spot the film leaves on of like, how does Paul move forward? He's written the book he's always wanted to write, but he's still, I guess it's a good thing this happened. Like he feels conflicted. It's a, it's a conflicting ending emotionally, which I think is is really satisfying to leave on. Yeah, also really interesting in the sense of like the gender inversion that I spoke of earlier as far as like subverting genre expectations is like, you know, how many movies have we seen where at the end the the last girl is is haunted by her experience but still is still making it work. And that's what we get with Paul at the end of this movie. Interesting. I didn't think about it on that way, but yeah, that's totally, totally true. There's also something there of like this this might not have been a one-off, you know that this is something that could easily happen to another person further down the line. Because, you know, the, the way that the, the woman actually says, you know, I'm your number one fan. There is a bit of like a sinister twist that, that I felt like in her face just there. And whether or not that was just like how Paul was perceiving that moment or whether it, it that's how it actually was. It still is like, oh, it gives you the shivers. Yeah, and again, like that that genre uh, gender inversion of just like you know, now it's a man who is is uncomfortable around women who fawn over him with with uh, with fandom and everything, and how that could be potentially dangerous. Uh, I think it's a really complicated ending and really interesting in that sense. One thing that I was not satisfied with at the end, and I was had I had been concerned about the entire movie, and. Misery the pig? What happened to that pig? I actually, you know, um, when I was watching it with my roommate, um, the the one that hadn't seen it before was like, does anything happen to the pig? And it was so funny she had asked that because there was a part of me that was like, earlier on, damn, did anything happen to that pig? Does she? That was the one thing I couldn't remember because it's something that you would almost expect to happen to. Instead of www.doesthedogdie.com, it's does the pig named misery. I went to doesthedogdie.com to find pig the misery.com. So, this is a movie website where it tells you with spoilers whether or not the dog survives the movie. Are you not familiar with doesthedogdie.com? It's a necessity in, in this it really, world. It truly it's is. A, yeah. If you're always concerned about the introduction of some pet or animal and you're like, fuck me, because this is like going to tear me apart more than the death of the actual uh, like human protagonists. <laughs> it's good to know people are looking out for us. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up a great point, though, Sam. You know what I bet is is Virginia will take over as sheriff. She's Buster's wife, right, Virginia? She'll take over as sheriff. She'll run the farm. She'll take Misery the Pig. Everything will be fine. I, I hope that's how it happened. It's a happy ending, finally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a few pieces of trivia as we're wrapping up here. Uh, it's funny we brought up that this kind of feels like it could be a play, because the original intention for this novel was for it to be turned into a Broadway play with Julia Roberts 
playing Annie Wilkes. Uh, but King vetoed the idea because Annie, in his words, is a brawny woman who can sling a guy around, not a pixie. But in 2015, there was a Broadway adaptation that was produced with critical, apparently critical and commercial success, starring Bruce Willis as Paul Sheldon, the author. Who, who is going to be cast in the movie? Apparently, another thing that's really funny is that it's like, if you look into the people who were going to play uh, Paul Sheldon in the film, it's like, it's like, uh, like all you're not like Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Kurt Russell, uh, Bruce Willis, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like all these really hyper masculine like movie stars so to speak, who turned down the role because they would have to be not only second tier to a more pronounced uh, performance from a woman, but would also have to be subjugated as the victim of the story. Um, so it's really interesting to see that Khan took the, took the helm on that front. And also especially funny that Bruce Willis did it in the stage play because he refused it initially. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really a who's who of, you know, what you know? What the studio was looking for to cast. They also asked Jack Nicholson, who turned it down, right? Um, because he was unhappy with King's thoughts on The Shining, Kubrick's The Shining. So I think that makes sense that he didn't want to do this. But Khan had previously turned down Nicholson's Oscar-winning role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which right. kind of has some similar themes, which Dave you mentioned. So I was happy you brought that up. James Khan had to stay in bed for 15 weeks of shooting. Constant that he thought Rob Reiner was playing a sadistic, quote, sadistic joke on him, knowing that the actor would not enjoy moving around for 15 weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, he was not used to playing a reactionary character. And apparently that was a pretty big challenge, which is being a character who's not active, but reacting, which I think is an interesting thought. Um, and apparently James Conn also showed up to the set hungover one day and all the scenes that they shot were totally unusable. Uh, Reiner had told Conn that the scenes, uh, they had to shoot the scenes again because there was a quote problem in the lab. But when Conn learned the truth later that it was his performance, he offered to cover the money out of his own pocket that was lost from that shoot mm -hmm. from that day. So pretty interesting production. I, unfortunately, the burning question we all have is was the snow real? I could not find any confirmation about what snow was real or wasn't real, but there appeared to be lots of real snow. But if I had I bet to that guess, snow was real. Yeah. I guess the blizzard snow was not real. Like in the car, that's probably in the studio. And but I, I maybe other people found notes. It looked very real to it me. Did. Everything. It, really it did. did. I'm gonna guess all the snow on the ground was real, but my guess would be in the actual car scene that that snow was fake. So I guess the snow is most, is my guess is the snow is mostly real, but there's probably moments where it was fake snow just for the, to shoot the scenes. That's just my guess. But that's the burning question of this theme, isn't it? That we'll have to answer every episode. As always. Every movie, we'll gotta, we gotta know. Well, I thought this was a pretty good pick for cold month. It is in the winter. The inciting incident is a blizzard that he gets trapped in. So I thought this is pretty appropriate. Thanks for this really great discussion. I feel like Misery is a film we could talk about for another hour, uh, but I think we'll Probably. wrap it up here. I <laughs> uh, just want to give another big shout out to the Movie John Podcast Network. Many wonderful podcasts on there. We are thrilled to be a part of that podcast family. Be sure to check out our um, sibling podcasts. Anybody else, folks, want to last final mentions about Misery or anything else you want to touch on as we're closing out? Watch Misery. It's great. Uh, and expect uh, other uh, either atmospherically or tonally cold films uh, coming down the pike. 
be sure you can put your snow tires on too. You don't want to bundle up for the rest of this month. Yeah. Be sure to bundle up. Well, this has been butter with that episode. Something. Um, Great. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, send us an email, butter with that podcast at gmail.com. It's been a while since we've gotten an email. So we'd love to read one. What's your favorite cold movie? I don't know how much longer we can do this theme. <laughs> I don't know how many more years we have left of cold movie themes before we just all do Christmas movies. So, well, I'm curious to see how this theme will live on. And I absolutely cannot wait to talk about more cold movies over the course of December and then wrap up Butter With That 2021. Hard to believe we've made it another year. Well, as we say here in this part of the Butter Corner, have a good whatever. Stay frosty. And don't get kidnapped by your number one fan.